The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 23rd, 2015, the Is It Rude to Fall Asleep During the State of the Union edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm alone in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in New York, appropriately. Hello, Emily. Yes, I am. Hello. And John Dickerson, usually my trusty uh, companion here in the D.C. studio, has made his first foray out into the, the world of presidential electoral politics. John, what part of Iowa are you in at this moment? Well, I'm actually just in Des Moines, which is, I mean, That's not exciting. Des Moines. there's nothing wrong with Des Moines, but I mean, I'm not in Muscatine or Decorah or Davenport or something interesting like that. What's your favorite place in Iowa to say? Huh. Muscatine is pretty good. Muscatine's not bad. I, I once was at I like the three of those towns or cities together. That was a good little run there. I was once at an event with Lamar Alexander in 1996 where Miss Muscatine was the talent at the event. And uh, I think she was wearing a tiara. Is it, um, isn't anyway, Muscatine it was, a kind of grape? It's a kind of, <laughs> I'm serious. Isn't it a kind of grape? I don't know. I, I don't is. know. I like it with a, you, know, like a, you mean like a Shiraz, Muscatine, and Mouvedra I blend. thought it's, there are these early American, there's these American grapes, and Concord grape is the kind of most palatable one, although it's pretty sour, but you're... But I think a muscatine is a big grape. Am I wrong about that? No, you could be right. I mean, it's, you, you sound like what you're saying is right. Maybe they come from Muscatine, Iowa. All right. Anyway. We have no idea. On today's show, Tark, check on that. <laughs> check that. Check it. On today's show, Obama's uh, State of the Union. He raises the middle finger to the Republicans in Congress. How will they reply? Then we're going to talk about the Supreme Court taking another marriage equality case, maybe the final one, maybe the big one, the big kahuna. And we will talk about the Selma, MLK, LBJ controversy. Does the movie Selma misrepresent history? Uh, and does it, does it do unfair damage to Lyndon Johnson's reputation as a civil rights advocate? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we're going to talk sports, kind of. We're going to talk in the wake of the Patriots deflation scandal. We're going to talk about when is it okay to cheat in sports and in politics. Is it okay to cheat? Are dirty tricks okay? I'm going to make the case maybe that they are. Uh, before we get started, a quick announcement for people who uh, listened to my podcast earlier this year of Working, which was a podcast where I interviewed people about what they did all day. I am very pleased to announce that we're going to do a season two of Working. Yay! Uh, yeah, it was it was a really fun project. You know, there was great interviews. The Stephen Colbert one, I guess, was probably the highlight, but there were lots of other great interviews in there. But I'm not doing it, so we're going to have another host, and then the new host is going to be a great host, Adam Davidson, the creator of Planet Money and the New York Times Magazine columnist, and one of the great radio people of our time, and a fantastic interviewer who also is incredibly curious. He's just a person who who is curious about everything, and so he, Adam's going to take over the podcast, and it's going to start in March. So look for season two of Working with Adam Davidson coming in March. Uh, the Muscatine is a grape. Nice. All right. Confirmed. Nice. Is it great? David starts off on a good uh, note. Is it from Muscatine, Iowa? Oh, it's Muscadine. Oh, no, I am wrong. The Muscadine grape, which maybe is not the Muscatine. On Tuesday night, one of the last grand spectacles of Washington, the State of the Union, President Obama delivering his sixth and next to last version of the speech. 
made the case that the country is fully recovered from the recession, that the economy is thriving. And he challenged Republicans in Congress to take up his proposals for free community college, for expanded child care, for tax hikes on the wealthy, particularly on capital gains, for expanded relations with Cuba, for an authorization of the use of force against ISIL. Um, and he also warned them that he would fight back with vetoes against further Iran sanctions or restrictions on abortion and various other things. It was a pretty noisy room. There was heckling. There was tweeting. Uh, there was falling asleep from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which we'll talk about in a minute. So, John, all his proposals, these are very ambitious, usually in general, fairly liberal proposals around community college, around R&D, around tax hikes for the wealthy, uh, expanded child care. These have like literally no chance of going anywhere in the Republican Congress. What was the point of doing it? Why did he do that? Well, I think the point was a fewfold. You know, there's going to be a big conversation over the next two years, but particularly over the next year, you know, who are you for? As we distribute government programs, like whose side are you on? And the president wanted to make his opening gambit in that. And so by proposing these items, he wasn't, as you quite rightly point out, they're never going to get anywhere. But what he was doing is trying, trying to send like a value signal. And the value signal was not only I'm interested in the middle class and I care about the middle class, but in the specific things he chose, if you look at them, those are things that they were trying to pick, not trying to pick, but picked and hoped they would have this effect, which was to say to a middle class family, I know what you're going through. I know you need uh, some extra help paying for child care. I know that both of you, are, both husband and wife, are working, and so I'm going to give you a, a break for two uh, earner families. You know, I know you might need a little more education to get that job you want, and so we'll give you free community college. These are like value statements that I understand the kind of life you lead, and and you will see your life reflected in these programs if you don't already see your life reflected in the improved economic conditions that I'm declaring are now constant. And the final point was to then use that to put Republicans in a box, because if the president is saying Democrats and I believe and care about you and know what it's like you know, to sit on a bus on your way to your third job in the day, what they're saying is Republicans are standing up for lobbyists and the super rich. That's who they're thinking about when they're making their programs. So it was a, there was a real second sort of uh, element to this set of programs that was sending a pretty sharp political message. Emily, it, it was a very gloating kind of the hell with you, State of the Union, which made no acknowledgement that the Republicans had a, have a majority of the Senate and an overwhelming majority in the House uh, for the first time in quite a while and that the elections of 2014 went totally against the president. Do you think it was appropriate? I hate that word. Take that back. Withdrawn. Yeah, that's you our think it was, hated word. Do you think, why, do you think the president, why do you think the president didn't mention that fact? I think the president is was trying to shape a debate that's based on falling unemployment and the deficit coming down and taking credit for the economic recovery, looking forward in a way that now Democrats are prepared to spend some money. Not that much money. These are like pretty cheap programs. Um, there's a frugality to Obama's thinking generally, I think, but they're not in a crouch of defensiveness dealing with a crisis. They're trying to imagine what the world they would want to have would look like next. And that these programs are addressing inequality in a really head-on way. And also the problem of the wage slowdown, which is like the big issue for middle class and working class and lower income people is that their wages just haven't kept pace. And in terms of redistribution, I mean, again, we're not talking about many, many, many billions of dollars. But we are talking about 
taxing the super rich in a way that would benefit everyone else. That's what the trade-off in the tax reform package is. So yeah, I think everything John said is true. That is that's the debate that's a better, much better ground for the Democrats than oh, we just lost the last election. You guys won. Let's try to make concessions. I don't there... think Obama's interested in that. Okay, so I guess so. Neither of you think, and I, I think I agree with you, but I just want to get this on the record for posterity that the president has any obligation to acknowledge political reality and sort of and congratulate the Republicans for great win guys in this situation. Well, he obviously doesn't have a constitutional and he doesn't have a like, as you pointed out, it's not like a question of appropriateness or not. But it is you could you could make a political case possibly for why he should acknowledge that. If you if your view of the world and this is not their view of the world and that's the reason they didn't do it. If your view of the world is that the the last election represented a large represented where the mainstream and majority of the country is. If you believe the last election was a special case where the Senate races were in mostly Republican districts and that the country is with you and not with the electorate that um, was small and right leaning in the last election, if you make that bet, then there's no, you know, then you don't have to acknowledge it. You, you could make an opposite bet, which is the majority of the country cares about getting along. And as a result, they're going to want you to kind of do some things that seem accommodating and seem to take a note of the fact that you, that your side took a shellacking. I think that that's part of what the president was trying to do when he stirred up the old, and we can talk about this, the old stuff about, you know, his speech in 2004 and how we can all get together, which I think by now has become just like a almost thoroughly cynical. But that was a nod towards that other thing I'm talking about. But the thrust of the speech was basically the, I think you're right, as a political matter, he thinks that there's more benefit in creating sharp lines than than sort of trying to go along. Emily, like one of the funny things about this speech is that it's been getting this speech has been getting more and more like the British Parliament for most of our lives. The, the speech gained pomp and gained pomp. And there was a kind of implicit bipartisanship in the speech that we were, we're all now going to gather to celebrate the greatness that is the American Republic and, and look at, we have Supreme Court justices, we have both parties together, we will applaud our military, et cetera, et cetera. This time, I think because there's so much distrust between Obama and Congress, there was muttered heckling. There was a lot of clearly Republicans tweeting or just being on their devices or generally not wanting to pay attention during it. It was a very it was very much more like a British legislative session than an American one. Is that is that a good thing or is that bad that we're being so disrespectful? You know, I'm not a big institutionalist, so I feel like okay, a little heckling and disrespect Whatever. I was glad that we didn't have a kind of big disrespectful moment like when Sam Alito mouthed you lie at the president or that congressman, I forget who it was, shouted in the middle. And those things seem to me like Sam Alito mouth you lie? Yeah, well, when, when, Obama, when said that Obama brought up Citizens United and blamed... He what? said, he mouthed, that's not right. He, yeah, no, Joe Wilson was oh, like... Was Joe, Joe Wilson. Wilson. Okay. I was like, are they always saying liar? <laughs> sorry. Okay, I am sorry, Justice Alito. I apologize. Justice right, I Alito said... said true. I can't remember something like that. Yeah, he said something that was not quite as... But he clearly expressed disagreement in this visible, and he kind of shook his head and made a face sort of thing. Anyway, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's fine that he did that. He was expressing his feelings. I am someone who you can read what I think all the time, and I'm not very respectful in public settings. So who am I to criticize people for it? You know, I guess on some grand level, why why was it so bad to have Joe Wilson stand up and say you lie? That just seemed over the top. Maybe it was fine. 
I think it's all fine. I like, you know, big open. I mean, you lie. Brawling. I don't know, especially in the State of the Union where it's so, we should talk about the form this speech took too, because it was different. But, you know, it's such a fake event. It's a little serendipity that sneaks in is almost all that rescues it from being useless. I mean, I thought the president, when he said, I don't have any more elections left and Republicans applauded and he responded, I thought that was an incredibly revealing thing. Um, Right. That was like the most interesting moment. And it was ad lib and off the cuff. Right. And it was only because they were heckling him that he kind of heckled back. Right. I mean, it was so funny because it was at the moment in the speech when he was referring to the fact that, you know, we should stop the petty behavior and the cable talk show smallness and the, the kind of tit for tat that has ruined our politics. And then he, like, can't resist taking the bait. Like, so right, they he provided like the soundbite for and, the next day's TV. Right, and instead of him stopping and saying, you know what, that's what I'm talking about. Like, this whole riff in my speech that I just went through, that's what I'm talking about. You're, you're applauding that I was. And, like, using it as the moment to make his case, he couldn't resist, and he had to remind them that he had won twice, thereby engaging in precisely the kind of back-and-forth Irresistible, I'm sure, but and yet juvenile. Yes, and yet juvenile, and nevertheless, like behaving exactly as he was just telling them not to. It was uh, it was a great moment. I guess should Obama have made this speech two years ago, even though the economy hadn't recovered. I mean, for the left, I think there's something frustrating about it being only now that the president has really entirely given up on his bipartisan promises and is drawing these sharp lines. So part of me thinks, like, God, why didn't you propose well, don't this you, before the don't election? You, but don't you, remember, thinks- don't you remember when Bill Clinton, they brought out Bill Clinton during the Democratic Convention of 2012 to make the case for the Obama years that Obama himself was didn't seem capable of making? That it's, it clearly is something that other people do better than he does. And I, I think he, you know, I but think people But he did it want, well now that he's done it. Yeah, he did it well, but it was, you know, better circumstances now also. Right. I feel like he needed that wind at his back of the economy's pickup. What do you think, John? I think that's, I think you're exactly right. I mean, he has talked about the middle class and trying to improve the condition for the middle class since he was a senator running for president in 2008. And he's put forward sets of proposals that are supposedly going to do this, the American Jobs Act or whatever it was called in 2011 that nobody paid any attention to. And I think it was difficult for him to sell those proposals for two reasons. One, with the economy bad, it was easy for people to buy the argument that Republicans put forward, which were, which was, you know, his policies haven't fixed the economy, so why do you want more of his policies? Now, if people buy, as they appear increasingly to, the idea that the economy is getting better, then suddenly the president can do what he did in that speech, which is say the verdict is in. I mean, it's extraordinary if you think just for a moment about the political disconnect. The Republicans in that seat, controlling both House and Senate for the first time in the president's tenure, are there because they think the country repudiated the president's policies. Like, that's why they think they're in those seats. And then the president comes out and says, no, those policies were totally vindicated. I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty wide disconnect in terms of the way people see things. But the polls show, at least for the moment, and I'll just cite two. One is CBS last week, 53% think the economy is good. That's the highest that number's been since 2007. It's a 14-point increase since October of last year. And the Gallup poll shows that people feel as good about their personal income as they have since 2007. That was the beginning, of course, of the Great Recession. What's important is that not, you know, it's one thing to say the economic numbers are getting bigger, GDP is high, deficits low relative to GDP, 58 months of job growth, but people didn't believe it. And now there is some some indication that actually the permafrost may be thawing. Two final questions. First, 
the Republican Congress responded immediately to President Obama's speech, particularly to the Iran part of it, by issuing an invitation to Bibi Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, to come and address Congress, which was a kind of unprecedented invitation. I think it's it's never the case. Maybe I may be slightly overstating it, but I think it's never the case that Congress extends invitations to foreign heads of states. That's usually the president's prerogative, and then the head of state may address Congress. But really, it is, it is the president sort of has, is the face of our foreign policy. And here we have this weird double tracking of foreign policy mediated through Israel. And you have Netanyahu, who has made it very clear that he doesn't like Obama and wants to deal with the Republicans. Did is he the, say he'd come, by the way? Yeah. The whole thing seems I he think did. He's, yeah, I think so. He's coming. Like, again, this is a case where where people are no longer they're they're not playing as nice. They're not abiding by traditional strictures, but maybe it's heightening the contradictions. It's causing more debate. I don't know. Do we think it's a good thing that Congress is being activist like this, that they're taking a role? Or is it a bad thing because we have these two branches of government that are headed for terrible collisions? I think it's fine. I think it's fine because the, I guess here's why I like it. Because the collision is going to be real and substantive. Like John just wants them to have right. a fight out no, in the open with real words. It's like the, I guess it's like this. It's like, you know, both sides were taunting each other from across the street. But, you know, like there was busy traffic and everybody kind of relied on the fact that the busy traffic was going to keep them from having to actually engage. And so now the traffic is totally gone. They've closed the street. They've, like, you know, laid out nice new fresh grass. And so there's no excuse. And so the taunts are fine because it means you're actually going to get, when it was just meaningless taunts with no actual chance of engagement, it was silly. But now, you know, there's, like, you're going to have to really actually engage. And so um, it feels like you're fine whatever you want to do in the service of that because you're, you know, that's going to be the most important thing. All right. Last question, Emily. Ruth Bader Ginsburg fell asleep during the speech. Oops. I love that. Do we know she totally fell asleep as opposed to was sitting there with her eyes closed? Nah. Was someone like, I mean, measuring look, her ram? As a 44-year-old <laughs> who who also fell asleep during that speech, I have so much sympathy for her. But is, is it rude to go to the speech and fall asleep? Or is it okay because yeah. she's, a, she's a Supreme Court justice? I mean, you know, she's, she's a Supreme Court old. justice. It's rude. Yeah. I think falling asleep in public is generally a bad idea. The times that I've done it at events, I've been disapproved of for sure. <laughs> Have you ever fallen asleep, John, at a State of the Union? Actually at an actual State of the Union? Yeah. I don't think so. I've definitely fallen asleep watching, you know, in those seats in Congress. Cause it has That's a, what Diet Coke is for, man. It has, you're coffee. not allowed to bring drinks in there. Um, oh. Are members allowed to? I don't think so. So I don't think so. They're allowed to bring Blackberries and and iPhones, but well, you definitely those, those are not pick me ups. No, well, actually, no. Your melatonin, you know, it gets blocked by the blue screen. Um, well, you know, that was some Dickersonian hoo ha. I know. Yeah. What does that mean? That was like does John that make spends you more all day tired or less. About, <laughs> your melatonin gets blocked. Please translate. No, because because re- regular folks aren't allowed to bring in digital devices. So um, that's you know, it's like you see the members using them, and it makes you very itchy. All right. I, have, I was having coffee with a guy the other day who used a BlackBerry, and I was like, You're, you must be the last BlackBerry user in America. Yeah, and the only way you can get to his MySpace account. He was, uh, his claim was he was using it because it, it has less electromagnetism or some, some something. And he you was, mean he wouldn't get brain cancer, yeah, he wouldn't and get he brain would, cancer, and, and he'll have the last it. laugh, even yeah. though he will exactly. never be able to get online. Exactly. <laughs> the Supreme Court will take a series of marriage equality cases this spring that could legalize gay marriage across the land. At the moment, 35 or 36 states 
and the District of Columbia. I'm unclear on how many. It's like different. 36. Okay. Now have they now have marriage equality, mostly, I think, following the Windsor case from last year or the year before. Not uh, exactly. Mo- well, yeah, yeah. Mostly, but the court, yes. There Sorry. were court decisions that sort of took what happened, what the Supreme Court did in the Windsor case and used it to essentially legalize gay marriage in, in various states, marriage equality in various states. So the court is now considering a bunch of cases from the middle of the country, from the Sixth Circuit, involving whether there is a right to marry, even in states where there are voter initiatives or laws banning marriage equality, and separately, whether there's an obligation for states that don't recognize gay marriages to recognize them. That took place. There were legal marriages in other states. So there are two. The, the court has separated the issue into two separate questions, which Emily is going to get into the strategery of that in one second. So strategery Emily, is that a word? I no, like it. that's the famous. Oh God, how soon we forget. That was the the famous uh, word that Saturday Night Live used to make fun of George W. Bush. Oh, when he was sorry. Strategic. Sorry, SNL. And then it's the word that inside the Bush administration, in Karl Rove's political shop, they then. That's what they it's call kind of themselves. a great word, actually. I think we sort of need that word. It is okay, strategery. So, Emily, first of all, why did this circuit not impose marriage equality in the way that all the other circuits and district courts have been imposing it in other parts of the country, which also had laws barring gay marriage? Yeah, the Sixth Circuit's an outlier on this one. It was a two-to-one split. The majority opinion is written by Jeffrey Sutton, who's one of the appellate judges who weighed in on Obamacare when we were arguing the last time, not the current Obamacare Supreme Court case, but the last one. And what Sutton said, he made the best possible case, I think. And basically, he said that this should be up to the voters in the states and not opposed by a federal court based on a Supreme Court ruling, which was not really demanding this result. So in other words, he has a long beginning that's all about like how change gets made and who it should be up to. And he says that judges should show restraint and they should let the voters, let people figure this out from them for themselves. So I made that argument a lot of times on the way to the Windsor victory. And So did many other people. And it was essentially an argument that said that gay marriage should be rooted in democratic decision making, that if it comes from the voters and the legislators and even from state courts, that it'll just have more legitimacy than if it gets imposed by the federal courts, in particular, the Supreme Court. I think the problem with this argument at this point is that We've seen the polls shift so much and there's been such widespread acceptance of gay marriage in the states where we have it that it feels stale. It's one thing to say the federal court should stay out of things when you have, you know, 45 or 40 states who have all banned gay marriage. But when you start to get into like above 20, it starts to seem like, well, maybe the country is ready for this already. And then the other problem is that the legal, which are really like the substantive arguments against gay marriage, have all completely collapsed. I mean, there used to be this notion that, you know, kids were worse off if they were raised by gay parents. That's just been disproved by essentially every decent research that's been done on the subject. And so and the idea that it's going to hurt heterosexual marriage, like there are all these canards that have essentially fallen by the wayside. And that was the the biggest problem with Sutton's opinion is that then he had to, like, resuscitate this whole ridiculous idea that marriage is really about procreation, which is just riddled with holes and laughable. And so the dissent by a judge named Sissy Doherty, which was very acerbic and biting and funny, actually, is, you know, it's like just a better read at this point. 
So did the marriage equality supporters want this fight? Did they want a case that was going to go to the Supreme Court? Or were they happy to have this happen, to have the circuits essentially legalize gay marriage circuit by circuit and then get 50 states just without it ever, the Supreme Court ever hearing it again? Or do they want a you know, Supreme Court case? Yes, they were. And this is a shift. I mean, for the whole strategy that led up to Windsor was this incremental strategy on the part of the traditional gay rights legal community where they didn't want the big equal protection nationwide question to get raised. They were the ones saying, no, no, let's go slow. But at this point, I think they are so cheered by the results that they're ready. And the reason... I feel confident about that is that if they had just waited two weeks to challenge the Sixth Circuit, then this would have rolled around to next the next year. We would not be having this happening in April and probably decided in June. And they also could have gone to the Sixth Circuit and asked for what's called en banc review, which is when the whole Sixth Circuit, all however many of them, hear the case. The gay rights lawyers skipped that step. And they also did it in this kind of collective way where there are this appeal is four cases rolled into one from four different states. There are a range of different plaintiffs. They have really good stories. And I think there's this sense that like, it's time. And the the gay rights movement is rolling the dice that the Supreme Court is ready. I think they'll probably be right about that. But we should talk a little more about these two questions that they agree to review. Talk about it, baby. Go to. I thought maybe you guys were going to want to weigh in. Well, they, I, know, I don't know me the no point of weighing in. Continue. <laughs> yes. So there's <laughs> celebration and recognition, right? All right. In case I just haven't gone on at length enough. Yeah. So People tune so, in for this stuff, Emily. Right. <laughs> or not. Or they could turn off. So, you know, Justice or Kennedy, the strategy around this litigation is all, is about Justice Kennedy. He's the one who will presumably write this opinion. He wrote the last opinions. He's the person who needs to agree with the liberals on the court that it's time. Although, in fact, I will say that it's not entirely clear to me that all four of the liberals are. I mean, I'm sure that in their hearts they think it's time. But this question of. So, OK, the first thing they could do is just tell all the states in the union that everyone has to recognize marriages performed in states where gay marriage is legal. That would be another incremental step. It would not be forcing the 14 states still hanging out there to adopt gay marriage until their legislators or courts are ready to do that. It would still be a pretty big gain, but at this point it would feel like a disappointment. And so the bigger fish on the hook is for the court to say that it's a violation of the Constitution for any state to refuse to perform a same-sex wedding. And that would impose gay marriage throughout the land, not merely as a matter of recognition, but as actually happening in every state. And I think that, honestly, either saying yes to either of those questions would be big and meaningful. But second, the second question at this point is the one that feels like what the gay rights movement is reaching for. Is there any reason to think that the court took split it and took these two different cases because there's a majority for the recognition but not for the 50 state legalization well or do we st- a- do we think i mean that's the kind of paranoid or that's the mm-hmm. anxiety is oh kennedy's willing to to have it be recognized everywhere but he's not willing to impose it yet Right. So there's a straight up just like legal reason they did this. These four cases raise these two different questions. It's a way of bisecting the argument that they're going to have in April. And maybe that's all they meant. Or maybe Justice Kennedy or someone else is kind of providing like a backstop here, a, a, a second position to retreat to if 
he or she or all five of them decide they're not ready to do the whole kahuna in this one. Isn't isn't there also a potential that there are other conservative justices who are not ready to do full gay marriage in all 50 states but don't want to be 100% on the wrong side of history so are willing to, like, give recognition? They might want to – that a Roberts might be willing to give recognition in all 50 states without – overturning state laws in these 14 states remaining. Yeah. I mean, the indication of that is that the Supreme Court did a surprising thing last month or around last month, which was they let some appeals court decisions go into effect instead of stopping them until this all gets worked out. And so that achieved gay marriage in a whole bunch of states where it hadn't been there before and it was surprising. And then in Florida, we're having this even weirder thing, which is there's one district court who said that gay marriage should be legal, legal, overturn the state's ban. And the Supreme Court refused to stay that order. And that one, there were only two dissents. It was just Scalia and Thomas who said, wait a second. And this is like, it's... It's just an irregular event to have one district court change the law in a dramatic way for an entire state and not have any higher court say, hey, wait a second. It suggests that everyone's just like ready to do this. Is there any any chance that that Scalia and Alito and Thomas actually sign on and say gay marriage should be legal everywhere? Is there any chance that we get like a nine nothing that everyone just like, you know what? History. We know where history is <laughs> going. Done. Let's get on the right side. I mean, I, t- I really hope that happens. That would be such a great outcome for the country. It would be one moment in which I really feel like the unity of the Supreme Court would be worth a lot. It's a little hard to imagine these people abandoning their, you know, deeply held reservations and principles, especially given what Scalia and Alito in particular have written in the past. But, hey, maybe they'll come on board. Emily, the old saw is that the um, Supreme Court is a lagging indicator that it kind of follows public opinion. And, yes. and that old saw existed in a time when the Supreme Court was a political body, but not maybe as overtly as political as it feels these days. So does that old saw still hold? Or does it not really matter because we're talking about like one or two justices who have always been more movable you know, we're not talking about a body. We're really talking about Kennedy and Roberts. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, first of all, of course it's true. I mean, we would not, if 15, even 10 years ago, the notion that the Supreme Court was going to declare gay marriage legal throughout the land would have seemed pretty shocking and unattainable. So, of course, there's a way in which the political climate and the public change how people think, not in the sense that you the justices put a finger to the wind and like read the polls and then vote based on the polls. But their notion of what is socially acceptable, what the country is ready for comes from the feedback they get from all of us. And I think particularly when you have a civil rights question, which is about whether to expand people's liberty and equality, knowing that the country is weathering this change. In fact, like there's been really very little backlash when you think about it. I mean, compared to other big social issues, compared to like the backlash to Brown versus Board or Roe versus Wade, the backlash took a while to get going. But this just seems like something that most people in the country are actually going to support. And the court, the court knows that. John, let's close one last political question, which is one theory is that having the Supreme Court resolve this is a huge gift to Republicans for 2016 for Republican presidential candidates. It means that this is not a this is not a, an issue that is anyone's going to run on. It takes it off the table insofar as you want to 
dog whistle to social conservatives. You can talk a bit about activist judges, but it doesn't it just isn't a thing, you know, a grotesque bit of intolerance hanging over Republicans. Do you think that's a, a right theory? The Republican nominee is going to run away from this issue no matter what the Supreme Court does. So it helps certain candidates if the Supreme Court ruled in favor of same-sex marriage. They would basically be able to say, look, the court's ruled, my hands are tied. I think no matter what the court does, there will be certain candidates who will benefit from talking about same-sex marriage. But I'm, I think that's a small group. Like, I, I think, you know, maybe Mike Huckabee might talk about it. But I don't think anybody who really wants to capture a big part of the vote in the party or even nationally is going to talk about it. I mean, the issue has just disappeared from the conversation. And I think people want to keep it disappeared. I mean, except for a very small portion of the Republican, not even the Republican, the conservative movement. No, but Democrats want it to be appeared because they can. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, it ha- so, so, so you're just saying that it does help Republicans because it will disappear the issue. No, because it, it, regardless of what the court does, I mean, it will, whatever the court decides, there will be a few stories about it. And then Republicans are not going to bring it up again in their races and in their primaries and in their, I mean, it'll just go on. And then is Hillary Clinton going to like actively use it, use it as a weapon against her opponents? I don't think so. Right. Because the court will have decided the issue. No, but even if, let's say the court doesn't decide the issue. What's her line of argument? She would fundraise like crazy off of it. Be great. But you don't, you fundraise, you don't, you, you should have to fundraise with an affirmative stance. You mobilize gay groups around you. But what presidential decision is a new Republican president going to, I mean, I guess he could do stuff with federal contracting and federal policy. No, the Republican president isn't going to, it's not that Republican president is going to do something that big a deal. The issue is gone. I mean, it's clear where history is going. It's more that to win an election, you need people who are activated and motivated and, and excited and angry. And you, this having gay Americans excited and angry and angry at conservatives would be a boon to any Democratic candidate. Whereas if I the, mean, isn't if the it issue just is the settled, kind of yeah, thing that gets depends. like suburban moms, you know, that moderate that's moderate voter that... Sorry, Emily, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, that's all. That was my little Sub- story. Emily was talking about there. suburban moms yeah, like no, herself. I, I think what Shut you up. need... Look, this decision is going to come <laughs> in, uh, in June, right? You need, I don't live in the suburbs. Thank you very much. It's going to happen in June. Not you that need, there's anything wrong with such a thing. We're not listening to you, John. <laughs> sorry, John. We're having a little spat over here. Sorry. What what wise words were you trying well, to say? Well, no, I think the decision comes in June. Let's say it goes against... Same-sex marriage. I think you're right. You could get some fundraising boost at that time. But then you have to keep it in the news and the conversation. I mean, you you have to keep bringing it back up. I think you're going to – Hillary Clinton is going to get all the money she needs out of the Democratic donors who care about marriage equality. Either way – I mean, yes, incrementally, there's some extra amount maybe that she would get. But I think – I don't think something happens in June unless there's a new way to kind of keep it boiling ends up being a huge um, issue. I think the Republicans are trying too hard to keep this out of the way. I think the fundraising would go to Clinton anyway. I think you could make, and Emily would know this better than I do, I mean, the argument about who gets to appoint the next Supreme Court justices is a way that you would keep this issue alive regardless of what the outcome is. In other words, the next president is going to, you know, if it's a Republican, it could really keep the court in an even more conservative direction. And there may be, there would be a way if, I don't know, you could either undo the results of this ruling or lock it in, depending on which way it goes, if there's another conservative justice. So that's a way I guess it could continue. Let's move on to our next topic. Selma was nominated for Best Picture. 
It is a movie, of course, about the campaign led by Martin Luther King Jr. and others to win voting rights for African-Americans in the South. The 1965 campaign of marching and protest in Alabama it was centered on the city of Selma, a majority black city with 10,000 white voters and only 335 black ones. Arguably, the, the events of, of that winter, that spring, included one of the most horrifying moments in modern American history, the attack on unarmed marchers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, including the future Congressman John Lewis, among others. And the horrific images helped create a pressure that led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act. But the movie has come with controversy, and the controversy in particular has to do with whether Selma unfairly caricatures LBJ as somebody who is somewhat cynical or unenthusiastic about pushing for voting rights, who who only ended up pushing for voting rights because he was pressed into it and who was, meanwhile, trying to undermine Martin Luther King by using J. Edgar Hoover as his attack dog to do cruel, terrible things to King's family. Have you guys seen the movie, first of all? I have seen it. Yes, happily. John, have you had a chance? I have not. I was... um... I was supposed to last night, but um, something got in the way. So, Emily, first of all, do you do you think that the portrait of Johnson in this, insofar as you understand history, comports with what you know of history? I think it's wrong on some points, not as wrong as some of his past advisors have said. I mean, someone who worked for Johnson, Joseph Califano, said that Selma was Johnson's idea. And that, I think, is like, ridiculous. It was not. Um, and the the strength of the movie is the degree to which it's about the strategy of King, but also all the other organizers and the rivalry between SNCC and SELC. And I don't think I can translate those acronyms right now. Wait, student Southern Christian Leadership. Yeah, and Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Yeah. Okay. And Southern Christian Leadership Conference. All right. Anyway, I loved those aspects of the movie. But I think for dramatic reasons, the director of the movie wanted King to have this strong adversary and she cast LBJ in that role. I, what she got right was that the timing from, for a big Voting Rights Act push was off from Johnson's point of view. Johnson wanted to do his war on poverty legislation first, and he was asking King to wait, and King didn't want to wait. So that part seems fair enough to me. What seems wrong and damaging to Johnson in a way that's unfair is um, – well, first of all, it was Robert F. Kennedy when JFK was president who sicked Hoover on King. And second of all, you know, so I'm now going to start essentially quoting my friend Beverly Gage, who's an actual American historian. And she was writing to me that LBJ has a much more complicated and positive record on civil rights than the movie suggests. And that, you know, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, to some degree, like it's not that we owe them to him solely, but they wouldn't have happened without him. And yes, he was responding to pressure from the activists because that's how it goes. But Bev was saying, and this is part of a new book she's writing, that one thing that's really completely left out of the story is that after the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964, LBJ actually insisted that the FBI go after the Ku Klux Klan, which is not a part of the picture that we're seeing at all. Now, I don't blame that on the filmmaker because it seems like that that's something that Beverly is shining a light on that hasn't gotten much attention before. But, you know, it just the, the dynamic of the movie really casts LBJ as the bad guy yeah, in a way that diminishes well, him. Yeah, but... I mean, I find something deeply unseemly and embarrassing for Joseph Califano, first of all, but for and other white historians of LBJ to 
cast doubt to impugn a movie which does something which no one else has managed to do, which is to tell the story of the greatest, you know, political movement of our time of the last century, which was a movement that was led by African-Americans, inspired by African-Americans. The st- strategy was from African-Americans. And there were it's not to say there weren't whites involved in it. It's not to say that, the, you know, the Voting Rights Act wasn't passed through an overwhelmingly white Congress. It was. But it's a bit rich to try to, to make a big deal about sort of appropriating civil rights back to LBJ. Like, how about, like, let's let the people who actually created this movement and who earned this movement get their moment here. Well, can and, you, can't you? Yeah, have, that's certainly the main story. Views? And the main feeling that the movie leaves you with, too, which is like, a, a, to me, it was deeply moving. Sorry, John. Can't you hold both views? Can't you say that, of course, the protesters who went and walked across the bridge knowing that they'd be clubbed and and all of the work that was done in the streets is the is the reason that this happened but then also Johnson had a role to play what seemed hard to find answers and I haven't seen it but in the in the all of the analysis I read what I would have liked to have read was what the artistic choice I mean Emily you said Johnson had to be like a an actual sort of villain figure that has to be but overcome. But that's not right. That's not right. Johnson is not the villain. Johnson occupies a, a gray zone. You have George Wallace played with, you know, with scenery-chewing glee. I mean, there's a brilliant George Wallace who is clearly, like, villainous. There's a villainous Hoover. There's a villainous, you know, Sheriff Jim Clark. They're actual villains. Johnson okay, occupies so this usefully ambiguous just, place. Sorry, can I just continue? So my point is, since he's not a villain in the film, then the question is why... Why go around what seems to be the consensus, which is that Johnson was reluctant for at least two reasons. One, he didn't think he could get it through the Congress. Two, he wanted to use some capital after having used a lot of capital to get civil rights legislation through. He wanted to use it for some of his other priorities. And that that he was a reluctant, either for craven reasons or for strategic reasons, and that he needed to be pulled along. There's also obviously that famous phone call with Martin Luther King in which Johnson explicitly says, you know, if you could go and if you can find the worst condition that you run into in Alabama or Mississippi or Louisiana or South Carolina and get the worst condition you've ever seen on the radio or on the TV, that would create the conditions that would push a public movement to get this passed. So that phone call exists. So in a world in which that phone call exists, and in which you're not using Johnson in your piece of art as a villain, as you articulated so nicely, David, what's the choice then to make him the villain? Because you're not doing it for artistic reasons, and you're not doing it in keeping with, with history. And so, and I think Califano, who actually was the, he's not a historian, he's the person who worked in for Johnson on these issues. I think, I would guess, his point about it was Johnson's suggestion to have Selma, that's not right, but it was, there is this famous phone call in which he says if there could be a confrontation and that would raise consciousness. And I think you could imagine that's what really, that's what Califano meant. Yeah, but I don't think, it didn't take Joe Califano to realize that. I think that phone call comes well after. I, I, I don't have the timeline in my head, so. I, January 15th, 1965. I think, but it comes well after there's already a campaign in Selma. Right, so but the point is that he's saying there needs to be a public moment. Yeah, to, 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 um, but they were working. But on that's that what they were working. Yeah, on. I mean, no, this but, is a but, man who led the Montgomery bus boycott. Right, for God's I, under, I understand that. But if you're if you're in the position of trying to defend Johnson from the idea that he was actively pushing against this, 
and you're trying to say, no, it was his idea that there should be a public confrontation. Forget Califano. What is actually true is that Johnson did have this phone call. That's not in any way, in my understanding, and you can correct me if this is wrong, that phone call, that sentiment is not anywhere displayed in the film, leaving aside anything else. That is true. I differ with the notion that changing all of that wouldn't have artistic impact because I think Ava DuVernay, the director, you can see why she also wants Johnson as a kind of adversary for King as a foil. I mean, first of all, he's the president. It creates a lot of dramatic tension in the movie that he's not just going along. And also the scenes with Hoover, which to me are, I mean, I like the the tension of the, you know, pulling Johnson when he's not ready. That seems totally legitimate to me. The Hoover stuff, I think she probably could have edited out. But, you know, it does create this very sinister feeling. And there is a really intense scene between Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King, his wife, about his affairs. And if and in fact, the timing of that scene is off. The You know, those letters were being sent earlier. But it, it does add dramatically to the movie yeah, and to I, see that I, unfold. Also, I think historicity is like a pretty uninteresting question when it comes to fictional movies. But this it, is the thing. Is this a fictional movie yeah, or is it a non-fiction movie? It's, when... a, it's in between. It's like it's right. some, some, in the way that lot, lot, Nixon, the way that the Oliver Stone movies are, and the way that Malcolm X is. I mean, right. And yet, and you're David, allowed, in you're defense entitled, of, you're entitled in defense to of... create artistic tension and drama and heightened drama and, and alter people in certain so ways if you to do, do that. If you are entitled to do that, which of course you are as an artist then can you make the claims people are for this film, which is that it comes at a special moment and that it has social force in the real world. Are you allowed to say that if the story it's telling? Of course. Of course you are. And and, all the time there. But don't you also have to own that? Tell me how you draw that line. You know, we're a free society and people raise raise the criticism. And you, you know, I think I think it would be disingenuous for Ava DuVernay. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. For was, her, I think it's DuVernay probably. DuVernay. For her, to, for her to say this is, a, this is a completely historically accurate drama and every bit of history is, is rendered correctly. But I think, you know, I think you're allowed to present a, a, a version of history in a fictional work that has variations in it. My God, we allow versions of history. We allow actual truthful history to have all kinds of lies and, and falsehoods in it. I mean, stories that we put in textbooks for our children about American history are full of lies. So well, that's a problem, too. So I, mean, that's so I think not it's like... like the first work that's created by an African-American director about this moment in African-American life and like a moment in American history for everyone to be so upset that the white president in this is getting a slightly raw deal is just annoying to me. Well, I don't think that's... Well, that's fine. You can be annoyed. But the question is whether the film, which can do all of those things, whether all of those things would be ruined by an accurate portrayal of Johnson, who can easily be portrayed as a reluctant guy that Martin Luther King has to beat into doing the right thing, which is the truth of things. I guess the point is, how is how is the... The great good that this film does, which is tell the story from the perspective of the most important party, which are the people who face this danger and change the consciousness of the country, that all can still be done and still be good, and yet you can tell the the story of Johnson Wright. 
I guess I feel like, David, it's from my point of view, we're having a conversation about the sort of B side of this movie. The A side of this movie is the civil rights struggle, and it's pretty amazing portrayal of the people who fought and paid the price. And that was certainly everything I was thinking and feeling as I was watching it. But, you know, Nixon, these other movies, when you have a big popular movie about an historical event and it's essentially really going to help shape American popular opinion about it because that's the role that big Hollywood splashy films play. I mean, yes, sure. Ava DuVernay can do whatever she wants. She can take whatever artist. I'm not saying like that whether she has permission, but I do feel like there's something that's a bummer about a movie getting wrong a point that deeply matters to someone's reputation or to just the sort of truth of this history as you would really prefer people to understand it. And I, I think you're right to to say that to just freak out about this movie without thinking about it in the context of all these other big historical biopic-like movies is not fair to Ava DuVernay. And maybe it's like a little bit, I don't know about racist, but it's just a little bit specific to be worried about LBJ's reputation. I do think, though, that there is this bigger question for Hollywood to at least grapple with. And even though I think that a lot of the reaction has been too strong, I'm glad we're having the historical conversation. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are lounging lounging in some bar in Des Moines tonight. John Dickerson, what sad story you're going to be telling? John warned us that he had a, he had a sad chatter. So yeah. tell us the sad chatter. I mean, in, some, in a sense, it's, it's good that it's a cocktail chatter because the person that it's about um, certainly enjoyed uh, his share of good cocktails. Um, yesterday, a man named Neil Tonkin, who was my English teacher uh, in high school, uh, passed away. He was battling cancer for um, a while and uh, I got a chance to see him before he died, and that was really meaningful before I left here. Um, And the reason I'm talking about this is not only because he deserves tribute from having changed my life and played such an important role in it as a teacher and also as a um, and as also as a friend when I moved back, but also because I think he was a great person who changed my life because I can remember the very moment the actual moment when I was reading uh, a piece of literature for his class where I first sort of discovered what was great about discovering hidden meaning in a piece of text and then being able to articulate it in front of other people. And he and his excitement about that, both just in general and then specifically with his students, was what made wanting to learn such a, an infectious thing. But then also he used, he used to say, you know, there has to be an adult in a child's life who is not their parents who they can go tell their shit to. And that was his role. That's what he did. And he had this great balance that as parents we all try to find, which is understanding and empathy and being an ally and a conspirator and also having excruciatingly high standards. I got C pluses both semesters I was in his class. He was a total perfectionist and really rigorous person in terms of the standards of learning, but he was also incredibly empathetic and when I was there visiting him on the last day, they were reading letters to him once students had been his, had found out, and they, so they were reading them to him. And the, the email inbox they'd created for him was overflowing with people writing in and saying, you changed my life, and I am a better person because I knew you. And that seemed to me to be both a, not a bad reminder of the way we want to think about life when it's coming to its end but also a tribute to all of those teachers who take the time to um, not just help people learn about the beauty and wonder and passion of the world, but who help them through that 
you know, difficult and messy part of their lives when they're an adolescent. Um, so, to Neil Duncan. If you were a C-plus student, John, I would like to meet the A students from that class. <laughs> Emily, what is your chatter? I have a nice tennis sportsmanship story. A qualifier in the Australian Open, a guy named Tim Smichek, who was ranked 112th, was having this five-set battle with Rafael Nadal this week. And Nadal wasn't feeling well, but, you know, Smichek was really, like, holding his own. They were at five-sixths in the fifth set. Nadal was up 30-love. He was serving. He was ahead 6-5, I should say. And right as he was about to serve, a fan yelled something, and Nadal's serve was out because that's, like, incredibly distracting way to have to serve. And normally, he would just have had a second serve, but Smichek got the um, the referee's attention and put up two fingers for two serves, and Nadal got to have his first serve back. <laughs> and won the point, went up 40-love, and then actually Smichek came back. It was deuce, but then um, Nadal won that game. And Nadal was just full of praise for Smichek after the match, particularly, I think, because he was sick. He probably really was on the edge of losing. And it's just, like, an amazing thing to see an athlete at that level who stood to gain so much from a victory be that um, sportsmanlike. It, it's really unusual and um, and nice to see. Is that, I wonder if I, I mean, would ever be so, you know, so generous. I, I think I, it's, <laughs> nice, it's, it's kind of weird that, that that, which seems to me sort of the barest bit of decency, that that well, qualifies. I, know, but I mean, it, like, that's surprising. It must imagine it. how terrible everyone else is. Right. Well, or but just that you don't have to do it. Like to be in a moment in a game where the call goes for you and it's on you to do the right thing is hard. It's hard in a match when you want to win in any game not to just take every single advantage you can, right? Because if it was really unfair, then the ref would have it clearly unfair and against the rules, then the ref would have given Nadal the first serve on his own or her own. <laughs> hey, Emily of Wolo is just telling me on Monday, Smichek is going to be on Hang Up and Listen. Oh, that's awesome. All right. I'm definitely listening to that episode. That's great. That is awesome. Good good move, Josh Levine, the hang-up yeah. guys. Uh, my quick chatter. There's a measles outbreak that is centered on Disneyland in California because what has happened is that there are now so many stupid, dumbass parents in California who don't vaccinate their kids that herd immunity is weakening in California and in, also in Oregon where now only – the exemption rate now in Oregon is 7%. And, and the feeling among epidemiologists is that you need an exemption rate of under 5% to hold herd immunity. And so there's this now huge measles outbreak with more than 60 people getting measles from um, because of for, via Disneyland. And it's just infuriating that people are this stupid and this ignorant. And there was this quote from a doctor whose name I can't remember, but in the New York Times story, and it was so aggravating. And he was talking about why he seems to be counseling some of his patients against against vaccination, or at least he's not discouraging it. He said, don't get me wrong. I have no proof this vaccine causes harm. I just have anecdotal reports from parents who are convinced that their children were harmed by this vaccine. I was like, dude, like you're a scientist. You're a man of science. Don't do that. I love it. Yeah, it's like a doctor. I'm, I'm not a doctor. Well, but no, actually you are. I am a doctor. I mean, I am a doctor. But, but parents, are, parents have anecdotes. Anyway, our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Joel Meyer is the managing producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. And our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Email, of course, is GabFest at slate.com. You can subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating. 
you should search. Who needs to be told to search for Slate Political Gap Ask in the iTunes store? I say that every week. But all right, go ahead. Search for Slate Political Gap Ask in the iTunes Please, store. Please be, It'd be pretty stupid to search for anything else. There. It helps the show. Yeah. I mean, like, what else would people should search for to get the show? Like, really, Do literally. Do comments? For Please Emily, Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson in Iowa, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Mike Pesca, the probing and inquisitive host of The Gist, a daily news show from Slate. Recently, we asked Maria Konnikova if ASMR is bullshit. That term, by the way, didn't exist until a few years ago. We compared LBJ to Obama with historian Julian Zelazar. Lyndon Johnson, even today, uh, would be quite frustrated and have trouble with this Congress. I learned how baby cows are made. You have to be really quick and you have to know what you're doing without getting stepped on. So we invite you to find all these episodes at slate.com slash the gist.